At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email CampbellLawReporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle. I have a very special guest for us on this episode, a first-generation attorney. Heck, I think the only uh, attorney in her family and a... uh, you know, an established attorney, young attorney who has a multitude of experience that I think will guide you all in your journey in the law industry. My guest today is Krista Garcia. Krista, how are you? Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's a tall introduction there. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to meet that expectation here. I think you're going to do just fine. So I want to dive into a little bit of your background You're an attorney. You've been practicing for how long now? I'm in my sixth year. Sixth year. Okay. So give us a little background of how you got to where you are now. Just the little teaser. Wow. So I honestly don't know how I ended up as an attorney. I made a bet with my dad on the LSAT that if I didn't pass it, I was going to go ahead and become a sheriff with the rest of my family. (laughs) Okay. Sheriff and and lawyer are, I guess, the same, but that's okay. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So, I work so, with a lot of sheriffs. <laughs> right? you, you may have to do some work with some sheriffs. So you made a bet with your dad on the LSAT. I'm assuming the LSAT went in your favor since you are an attorney. Thank goodness, yes. <laughs> so then you dove into law school. And I ha- had no idea. You had no I idea mean, what you wanted to do. No idea what I wanted to do. I didn't even know how to apply for law school. Looking back, like I wish I would have applied to more schools. I think we're like all our worst critics. Okay. And I had no idea that I had a really good LSAT score and a really great GPA. Um, I didn't know enough about the process to really bet on myself in that way. Okay. So in hindsight, you wish you would have done just a few more things, just at least to get into law school. Oh yeah. Shoot for the moon. I wish I would have applied to Harvard. Why not? You know, what's the worst they can tell you is no, right? Exactly. So you, you go to law school, you went to the University of New Mexico and... What was your law school experience like? Uh, uh, I know just a little bit of, about your background beforehand. You were quite active in multitude of different programs, but a, a big thing of, of your background that I'm aware of is that you were really involved in like international tribunal stuff. Can you let us know about some of the extracurriculars that you did? For sure. So I had a non-traditional law school path. I think that's the best way to put it. Um, I, when I went into law school, my goal was to come back and go back into the political realm, which I came from. And I was never going to do criminal law. That was never my goal. And that's all I do now. So it's definitely a 180. Um, and I really was lucky in that in law school, I was confident enough to create my own experiences. So when there was something I wanted to go after, my school didn't have it. So I was really proactive in seeking other programs or even creating new ones. Are those ones with like other international like 
schools? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so I, I, it was a local school, so it was Creighton University in Omaha, um, and I program, I partnered with their summer program, and I participated in that, and that led to me actually working for the UN for a semester. I know uh, um, Campbell has a lot of different programs, like for overseas. I think we have a program that's in Scotland, and another thing that's in uh, England. Uh, for the professors that are running the program, my apologies if I got that wrong, but there are multi, there, there are definitely different programs available. Your law school maybe didn't meet those or what you wanted to do. So like, that's pretty cool that you were able to create it on your own. I think that's a law school best kept secret is that you can participate in other law schools programs pretty easily. And a lot of law schools have relationships with other schools that the students don't necessarily know about. And so Creighton was one school that played really well with UNM, but it was never advertised anywhere. I think I found like a pamphlet in some back hallway and then got an ad on Facebook because our phones are always listening. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was one of those things. And looking back, I wish I would have found out before my 2L year because I feel like I missed a lot of opportunities. So my school had like a Spain program that Mm -hmm. really looked into international business deals. Okay. And so I participated in that while I was waiting to go to Creighton's program, which was a war crime study program. And so the Creighton one was the one that you got to use or utilize to get at the Hague. Yes. Okay. Well, that and then also um, my school for a limited period of time had a Gitmo observing program, which I also participated in. So it all kind of built off each other. So folks, Krista has a lot of experience on a whole bunch of things, but that's like the whole purpose of school. You get to kind of like dabble in the different things to figure out real quickly or right away what you like and what you do not like, right? Because you went in thinking that you were going to go back into the political realm or back into whichever, but you never thought that you would end up to where you are now. So what are you doing now? You just told us what you did in law school, but what are you doing now? Um, I opened up my own law firm and I think that I'm going to be in this space for a while. I started as a prosecutor, state prosecutor, um, and I loved that work. Uh, if it was about the work, I would have done that for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, I think a huge problem in the practice of law is it was just a very toxic workplace environment. And from what I know, prosecutors, public defenders have dockets outrageously high in numbers, 400, 500 cases. That's unimaginable on how the type of load that is. And that's that's just like a normal day as a prosecutor. So like, was that a big factor in, in how you shifted or like you were okay with that and it was other stuff? I was okay with it because it, I didn't know anything different. So when I was in a prosecutor, I was in a smaller office. I was right outside of the major metropolitan area in Albuquerque. I was in um, the 13th Judicial District. So being there, there was a lot less attorneys. So we came into much higher dockets. And that was my first real legal job outside of our law clinic. So I didn't know about like proper caseload caps and workflow and efficiency and things like that. So I was trained in that environment. So while I was in it, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with it. I think at my highest level, I had about 468 cases. And I really loved the fast paced nature of it. I loved that I was physically up walking around interacting with people in court every day. I was lucky enough to have some support staff to kind of help on the back end to keep me afloat. 
and it really required me to be very knowledgeable on the law and I got really good at improvising, thinking on my feet in that critical legal strategy um, really quickly. Okay, so you had your law school experience creating your own, in essence, what is it? Create your own adventure, right? You, right. you have a whole bunch of the, the different books that you can do or, or games. And then you, you chose the path of prosecutor. What'd you do after that? So I went into actually legal education in the form of Barbary. Barbary was a really unique experience where it allowed me to travel a lot. I always saw myself going back into the international realm. And unfortunately, during the Trump administration, a lot of those doors were closed. Um, So it allowed me to go into this teaching area, travel a lot. I was traveling every week, meeting new people, seeing new programs and making those connections. Uh, I had a close friend who's working there. I think that's how 90% of us get our jobs is just by people we know. It's about who you know. So it was an awesome opportunity for me to transition quickly into a job after leaving the state and getting some more experience and some knowledge. And I'm actually really glad I did it. Yeah, it provides you a different avenue of information, I'd say, because, you know, you have the tunnel of a prosecutor in a small area of New Mexico. There's a whole different avenue for law and education is part of it, but then you got you 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 in essence get exposed to different regions at the same time. So I think it's a little bit more beneficial than some may think. You know, you're just like, oh, you're in legal education. You you learned a lot more than that. Definitely about the application of knowledge, really what our base is, how to teach future lawyers to think logically and quickly through problem solving. I think those are a lot of skills that law school doesn't teach you. Law school does a really good job at reprogramming the way you evaluate issues um, and some information, just rule memorization and things like that. But Barbary really makes you memorize all of the facts and the rules. And so when I was studying for the bar, I had to reteach myself how to be a student. I think the same thing happened when I was in law school. I had to reteach myself how to be a student for law school, then reteach yourself how to be a student for the bar exam. And those are very different. And what I loved most about Being in that role was being able to interact with all the students at a very early start and sharing my story and hopefully encouraging them to go after their own opportunities in school. I like that because you kept on going after your drive, right? Through my law school experience, I've realized that there's like like an interest itch where people, oh, I'm I'm interested in this. And then they want to dabble in something else. They want to dabble in something else as they find their their comfort zone of what they really want to do, or at least on the, on that path. And I think Barbary adds to that story to you. You were a prosecutor and there's thinking on your feet and you wanted to portray that, that same message to students and how they think on their feet and, and memorize the rules that they need to know. So what was the next venture for you after Barbary? I think while I was in Barbary, I was always taking cases on the side I never wanted to lose touch with the actual practice of law, and I knew that it was something I wanted to get back to. I didn't have any interest of leaving to go to a JD Advantage job or a policy-driven job. I knew that being in the courtroom was what made me happy, and I was really drawn to cases and causes where we were really addressing like injustices. And see, that's the, that's the key thing here, is that you are able to realize that by dabbing into different professions that are all in the repertoire of people that have law degrees, right? Definitely. And I think it's important that everyone remembers you can change it. 
So I think there's this misguided idea that like once you get into your first job, that's your whole career. No, not at all. And it can be difficult to change, but it's possible. And if you're not happy, don't do that for 20 years. Well, and someone who's who's heard about your background, you may you I don't think you've ever been like, yeah, these changes are are, are great and I'm so excited. You've been more like, okay, I made this change, but I'm like doing it cautiously. So looking in hindsight, how would you rate those changes on how how you experienced it in, in your law profession? As far as like how I'm being successful or not necessarily about successful, more on the on the aspect of was taking that leap more beneficial than just being in that path? I think the regret I have looking back at my career as a whole now is not betting on myself sooner. I was really afraid to go out on my own. It was something I was always curious about, but I didn't have enough confidence in my skills or my own abilities really as an attorney to say I can run my own office. And that's what you do now. So we made it full circle on your yeah. back on your background. And I wanted to dive into it because it is very unique because so many people are like, oh, you have to be in big law or you have to be this and you're grinding and, and you're doing all that. Krista took a very unorthodox path to it but for reason, because you were like dabbing in different things that you were interested in, finding to what you were really going to hook on to. And a lot of people don't think that in law school, that you have those abilities to go in-house or go work for a company or work for yourself or work for the state. A lot of people just have this tunnel vision. So what you know now in the multitude of different things, types of law that you've done, what would you wish that you knew now? that you didn't know when you were a law student? I wish I would have tried more things. So I have a really great international law base. I have a really great national security base, criminal prosecution and defense base. And a lot of those started in law school. I do not have the best base. Like personal injury is a foreign language to me. And learning to do that while running a business is really hard. So mentorship and having a lot of support in the legal community is a good thing. But also there are certain types of cases that I really want to start taking and I have to weigh, do I have the time to adequately teach me, teach myself this new part of law to give these people an actual real product? Because I never want to take a customer or or client in this case, essentially they are customers and give them a crappy product because I didn't have the time to read the statutes. I didn't have the know with all to understand how the rules play or how the judges prefer things. So that's a huge drawback. I wish I would have done more civil type things. Well, and it sounds like you 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 almost want to invest more into your to yourself. Yeah. And and not just the schedule that you were given, especially in law school, right? You're told take these classes, mm-hmm. there you go. You kind of wish that there was a little bit more malleability, if that's even a word, to it, to where you could move it to what you were kind of thinking of or to experience, right? Because we're all forced to do these things and then try to figure out all the different electives, right? For sure. I'm a huge proponent that school needs to be shorter or it needs to be longer because we're in this weird space where we have all this knowledge but no practical application. A lot of schools don't have a clinic requirement. Mine did, but compared to what I have to do now as a solo practitioner um, with limited support staff, how do you file a document? Like you can come out of school being the number one person in, 
and have no idea, yeah. right? How do you actually get this filed in yeah. court? How many copies do you have? How do you get your logins for the e-file system? Those are the hardest parts of lawyering. Right? It's the actual fundamental things that you'd have to figure out owning your own business. And that I really had to do alone. And I, I have a great community now. I'm really proud to say I have a lot of friends who, and, who are as attorneys in their own small firms or in their bigger firms that really are there to help spitball ideas. But I was I didn't have anyone at my disposal to be like, how do I sign up for the secured access portal password? So it was a lot of calling support lines and customer service lines. Um, and please be nice to all those people because they are your lifeline. Exactly. <laughs> um, to figure that part out. So I wish I had known that I was going to be on this journey sooner. So I could have started gathering that knowledge and making those connections. So it sounds to me that the benefit of your journey was trying different things out. Yes. I still don't know exactly what I want in the grand scheme. But I think that's good. Because you're, you're a relatively new attorney, right? In the scheme mm -hmm. of, of people's resumes, right? You've been practicing for, what, six years? Yeah. So that's relatively new. But it's really good to know that you're not, in essence, married, quote unquote, to a specific sector of law. You could, let's say, let's say tomorrow you want to be a whatever attorney. That's not what you're doing now, right? Just insert whatever subject of law. You could do that. And is that terrifying to you now as a solo practitioner or is that something that you welcome? It's definitely a problem. <laughs> so I wouldn't say that it's terrifying. You should really have a better idea. I think what I have is things that I really don't want to do. I know what those are. I knew that I'd never wanted to be in a big law firm. That was not for me. I did not want to live my life by billable hours and really be support staff essentially for a larger partner. So I knew that that was completely off the table. That was not the life I wanted. Um, I knew that I no longer wanted to be in government, which was a huge transition for me because most of my family, we've all worked in government one way or another. Um, so that was that was off the table. And it really leaves like this small and mid-sized firm, which I don't think they really teach us a lot. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's really like there's clinic work, which kind of touches mm -hmm. on that. But that's where you get kind of like real world exposure to these things. That's not just, here's the rule, here's a case, here you go. It's, no, Tim Smith has this problem, figure it out. Yeah, and they really want you to. So your clients are coming with you. Your clients are coming with you because something in their life has gone wrong. And they are desperately looking for someone to fix it. And it's real. And they need it right now. And it's the most important thing in their life. And they might be on your docket size of 40 or 50 clients. And they are that is the most important thing in their life. So you have to remember, one of the things I love about my practice is from the start of a case to the end of the case, you see this like huge shift in your clients' personalities and stress. Do you see them evolve? In a good, in the best of ways. If they're evolving in the wrong way. Yeah, like then, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whole different, a uh, whole different amount of problems right there, right? But you see the stress from the beginning when they call you and, and they're at their wit's end, right? They have been arrested. They have lost their children. They are now found out about an affair and their marriage is done. They call you in crisis, at least in my fields. Yeah, and, and, and your fields now as a solo practitioner are uh, family law and criminal defense. It's really this domestic violence kind of trifecta 
Um, I have a passion for criminal law. I don't think that will ever go away. So when I went out on my own, that's where I started doing mm-hmm. criminal defense. I think as a woman in criminal prosecution, you kind of get steered toward domestic violence, sex crimes, crimes of children. Um, they were all things that I loved to prosecute because I believe. Yeah, because you prosecuted against crimes against children. I know that. So it, it was a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I was always on the special victims team. So when I came out, um, I don't defend those cases very much, but it does create um, allegations of domestic violence. It's usually spousal. Mm-hmm. So they are arrested for it and it creates a criminal case. In New Mexico, we have a special civil process for domestic violence restraining orders. Um, Most states do. And then you have resulting custody and or divorces. So I kind of work in this trifecta of terrible times. But that all spawned, you were kind of figuring out where you wanted to go, and they all kind of bled to where you are now, right? And it's all an evolution of what I did. Yeah. So like criminal offense, they're coming with these problems, and then we find out that they have restraining orders. So then, okay, teach yourself how to do restraining orders. It has the same base knowledge. Then we have these custody battles that are based on the same premises. So then I was like, okay, we're getting in the custody battle because this client needs it. That's what they need. Um, And so now I'm looking at the next progression of that, and that's appearing in a lot of different ways. You mentioned that as a woman is something that you, you, you use that phrase and it stuck out to me. You are a six year attorney, a woman attorney. You've been a woman prosecutor, woman's uh, solo practitioner. How has, how, how has being in the legal field as a woman been with kind of like an ever evolving field, right? The law, the law industry is, is changing. It's changing in a bunch of different ways. So you kind of went in at a, at a very interesting point. How, how has it been as a woman practitioner starting out in your law industry? What a loaded question. That is very big. Okay. <laughs> episode, um, episode two coming up. No, but like the point being is that you've been, you've had to experience a lot of change as a woman practitioner on your, on your own, on your own dime, so to say. How has that been? That's that has to have been a trying and epic journey. So I I I know that a lot of people are like, it's 2022, like no one cares if you're a woman or a minority, and we, like the lawyers were supposed to protect people from that type of discrimination, but it's very much alive in the practice. It was something that I had experienced before being an attorney, and it's definitely something that I experience now, and it's in ways that you wouldn't expect. So I, I'm really lucky that I'm in a minority and majority state. I live mm-hmm. in New Mexico, um, and I'm part of the Latinx community. So I, I'm lucky in that I haven't experienced that. It's really when I travel outside of New Mexico where I experience that. But I have always experienced um, a certain discredit to my work for being a female and for being so young. And I appear very young. Like, thank you to the gods who made that happen. Um, but it, it when a judge calls you mijita, which is like which my is, girl, my little girl. Yeah, in, in in the Hispanic community, that's a you know my girl or or. It's or, not a bad. It's an endearing. Thing. Yeah. It's an endearing phrase. They think that it's great, and and they might be saying it like not even conscious that they're doing it because it's how they address people that they ha- they have respect or affection for. But that's the thing. Like they may not be intentionally hating on you, so to say, because you're a woman. 
but it's still that phrase. That phrase still has some loaded language behind it. Well, and then your your client's looking at you like, why is he calling? Yeah, why are you a mojita? Yeah, or um, opposing counsel will be like, I know you're new to this. Because I like, yeah, I'm like, first of all, I am new to this, but that does not matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I know the law. I know I'm right. I know I have the rules on my side. Like, negotiate with me like you would your peer because I am your peer. I think a few times walking into court, I get asked whose secretary I am because some attorneys, especially in the criminal world, will bring secretaries to take notes because they're moving so fast. Um, So I get asked that quite a bit. Um, I've lost clients because they've come to meet me in real life and they're like, no offense, but you look 12 and this is the most important thing in my life. I need to go find someone else, which is totally fine, but something I never expected. Do you think the law industry overall is changing though? In, in a welcoming sense to what you've experienced? Mm, yes and no. That's a hard question because I'm seeing this huge change from people trying to go big law. At least in my legal community, we're seeing more and more lawyers not accepting the long hours, not accepting the low pay. Which is good. It's a great thing. But now we're getting all of these solos. I mean, there's power in having a firm and having a group of people working together, um, sharing costs, definitely. As as the only attorney in my firm now, I started with two. I'm by myself now. Um, There's a great power in sharing costs. So when you get other solo practitioners and you're like, well, why don't we team up and share this secretary? And then you're like, okay, well, why aren't we in a firm? And then it's like, oh yeah, we don't trust each other because we've all been burned by the legal system. (laughs) All a dog eat dog. But it seems like from what I'm hearing, there may be some light coming because people are starting to realize that it's not the bill 14 million hours because you're the low person on the totem pole. There's a, there's a, work-life balance there's an understanding and there's almost like potential is that why there's more solos i hope it's coming okay i think there's a lot of firms who are using that as a hook it's kind of almost like insincere like oh we value work-life balance oh you don't have to have 2100 hours but you have to have 1800 hours And I think there's definitely some old guard gatekeeping. Like that's not going to completely change until the lawyers who grew up in that practice phase out and younger lawyers are in more managerial roles. And I also think there's like, there's this idea, you have great attorneys who believe to turn around and help the next one in. And that's what I I try to do, at least. I try to offer mentorship, even at my young age. I'm like, hey, you want to do it? I'll I'll help you. Well, and that's the reason why I, tw- I wanted you on. Yeah. Like, yeah, you may be only practicing for six years, but heck, <laughs> you've learned a lot I, more than anybody that is just entering into the law field. So I am very practical. I'm like, you need an accountant. You need this account. As opposed to, why don't we think about this? Like, no. There's very important infrastructural things you need. Um, so I don't gatekeep in that way. But there's other attorneys, and I don't necessarily blame them for this, but they've had to figure it out on their own. And they remember how hard that was. Like, for me, I learned from nothing. If I didn't have a family member helping me on the financial side, I probably wouldn't have made it this far. But that's why you know the difficulties on it. You hit, like, the trifecta here, right? The trifecta of you have a very unique resume, female lawyer in an evolving law industry and then a first gen lawyer right there's no other lawyers in your in your family so there wasn't even like hey aunt or uncle blah 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 
help me out here. Like, what do you, no, this is all Krista's world. I knew exactly one lawyer before applying to law school. Oh, correction, two. I knew two. Um, and one of them was not a very good experience. So it's kind of, it bewilders me looking back how I ended up in this profession. I feel like this is what I was meant to do. I don't feel like it's all chance, but looking back, I'm so grateful that I made it this far because there was never a reason for me to work this hard for it. And I'm, and see, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that we've touched on so many different things here because it proves I've been kind of on a little soapbox recently on like not only business infrastructure, but that you're in law school, you're not in this tunnel vision type of career, right? Where you have to be such and such law or I'm going to be a prosecutor, I'm going to be this. No, there are a multitude of things at your disposure and you can get to wherever your story ends in a multitude of ways. You're personifying the, 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 the reason to be an attorney is to find how you can help. And kind of the life that you want to live. I think that's the decision you have to make. What do you want your lifestyle to look like? And how can this practice get you there? There is the, the known idea that, oh, if you go big law, that's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. But that's okay if you want to do big law. If you want to do prosecuting, then you know you have 460 clients on your docket. If you want to do solo, you're going to be running with your hair on fire because you're trying to figure this all out. So how does that work on how you advise, because you say you like giving back to your community. How does all that knowledge work for you on advising students or whoever in the legal community? I think it definitely depends on who's asking and what their goals are. Again, what do you want your life to look like? What's important to you? What are your values? And I think not a lot of us take the time to figure out what those are. It took me years. I mean, my law firm has been open since 2018, and I'm still trying to decipher exactly what values I want to portray through this business and kind of what I had. I think a lot of us as law students are type A personalities, and we're a lot K through JD. And you just have a checklist, right? Like first grade, you got to do this. 12th grade, you got to do this. Then your applications go here. Then three years of law school and now a job. And there are no more checklists. Unless you go into a big established firm where there's clear benchmarks to get to partnership. Now I have this career and my whole life I've been chasing the checklists, right? And I got the degree. Now on to the next one. Now I have my law license and my only goal is not to lose that. Right. Not (laughs) to get sued. To give great product to my clients get them the best results I can don't lose my law license now what do I want that to be who do I want those clients and those customers to be what issues do I want to work on and those are some big daunting questions because it brings you back to who am I because my work is an expression of who I am and I don't think any of us can say definitely what that is. I hope no one can because that means you're not exploring, you're not learning, you're not growing. And like I said, I came from like this very government-oriented family, duty-bound, military, police officers, all of these things. Um, and now I'm deciding what is duty and and all of that look f- like for me now. Yeah, you def- you, you've in essence defined it for yourself and what your own mission is. Which is scary. <laughs> yeah, because it's not necessarily 
written on page and it's not dogma, right? It's changing. It's changed from law school to each and every sector of your professional being and even your personal being. So the the thing that I want to wrap up this with, it kind of goes into something that's big in Campbell is a purpose, especially leading with a purpose. What does leading with a purpose mean for you? Especially since your purpose has changed its definition throughout your professional and personal career. I definitely think you have to apply it in the different phases of my life, right? Personally, my purpose is very different in my personal life. Um, in my actual practice of law, my purpose is very client-driven. There is no better feeling than helping reunite someone with their children um, in a healthy and safe way, too. Because you're not always going to have a perfect client. I don't think perfect clients exist. So being able to have a, a good enough relationship with your client where they trust you and you can really benefit their lives and get their freedoms and their children back, that feeling is amazing. They don't tell you. It's not every day. <laughs> Sometimes it's weeks and months in between, which is hard. Um, it can be very hard. As a small firm, there's long stretches where it's a lot of court and a lot of paperwork, and you, those wins are hard to find um, just by the nature of it. And then as a business, my purpose is very different as well. Um, and I think sometimes the clients and the business clash. Mm -hmm. I love clients, and I, but it's hard when they don't align the same way. But there's still a purpose behind it, which is the bottom line, is that you're driven – you still got to eat. You still yeah. got to you still got to pay the bills and pay the employees and everything, but there's a purpose behind it. And that's the the whole thing. So, thanks for going through the whole circle of of your background, Krista, because I think you offer a unique experience for a relatively young um, attorney and a woman attorney who has had no other family insight onto navigating the this wonderful world of law. So thanks for joining the Campbell Law Reporter today. Parting advice for law students or anybody wanting to go solo in their career. Bet on yourself every time. If you're going to fail, do it for yourself. If you're going to succeed, do it for yourself. Don't, if you're not going to bet on you, who else is going to? Krista, thank you very much. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.